My name is Paul Bowman, and my work seeks to create solutions to water poverty in areas where people are subject to conditions that are beyond their control. So that could be people in a refugee camp, people suffering from drought, war, or just plain bad governance. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In-Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I talk with Paul Bowman on his lecture, A Strategy for Improving Rural Water Supply Development in Sub-Saharan Africa. Though 98% of the available fresh water in the world is groundwater, groundwater resources are not easily available in much of the world where subsurface water is the only option. Today, more than 400 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa live in water insecurity, meaning they lack reasonable access to either sufficient quantities of water or water of acceptable quality. In this conversation, Paul highlights how water impacts all 17 of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. He outlines the impact of 2 billion people living with water stress and how it could reach over 5 billion in the next 10 years. Paul also shares why every geoscientist needs to be aware of this crisis, how it impacts their own work, and what actions to take to address the issue. This is an inspiring, humbling, and necessary conversation. Visit seg.org slash podcast to hear his lecture and learn more on how you can help. And now, my conversation with Paul Bowman. Well, it's uh, an honor to speak with you for the third time for the SEG podcast, and you're the upcoming inaugural lecturer for the Global Sustainability Lecture, sponsored by Banker Hughes. And the series presents current SEG initiatives that directly connect to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals, specifically the humanitarian work that's achieved by the Geoscientists Without Borders program. What about the UN Sustainable Development Goals resonates with the work that you do? Well, I'm a geophysicist and a hydrogeologist, so clearly my background zooms right in on, on I guess, goal number six, clean water and, and sanitation. And indeed, much of my uh, professional time, much of my professional career has been focused on, on water resource exploration, especially in the, in the developing world. And even though water is, is, is really just zoomed in on sustainable development goal number six. In fact, I, I would say that it's part of all 17 of the sustainable development goals. So for instance, of course, um, uh, lack of water and poverty are, are tied together. Lack of, lack of water and food stress is tied together. So that relates to hunger, to health, to education. Uh, women often carry much of the burden in terms of water gathering, water, water use, water poverty. So gender equality, uh, responsible consumption, climate action, of course, uh, life below water. So I would say water is the foundation. Number six is the foundation to the other 16 development goals. The leading edge has featured how geophysics maps to all 17 of the UN Sustainable Development Goals that we'll link in, in the show notes of this episode. Paul, could you provide us just a sense of the global scale of the water issues that people face? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's too easy, although sitting here in Calgary or really most places in North America, it's, it's pretty easy to, to think everything is fine, but, but it isn't. Today, uh, you know, we recently, they tell us the population recently reached 8 billion people and about a quarter of the world's population, 2 billion people are living in what we call water stress. So they, there simply is not enough water to meet their basic needs of sanitation, of hygiene, and of even drinking. And 
estimates estimates vary, but it's it's thought that by 2025, 2030 at the at the latest, this will go from two billion to two thirds of the world's population will be in in water stress. And in an area where I've worked, in particular sub-Saharan Africa, there's 400 million people that simply do not have access to anything you would call reasonable, potable drinking water. That is either access to the water itself or water of, of reasonable quality. We have Even we have countries that, that have extreme amounts of rainfall that are already over-exploiting their aquifers. So for instance, Bangladesh, where you can get as much as five meters of, of rain a year, and, and they're already pumping out much more, more groundwater than is, than is recharged. And, and, you know, I go on and on, probably one of the most spectacular pieces of, of science we've seen that, that's highlighted the issue is the, is the NASA gray satellites, the gravity mapping satellites that have given us a sense of the health, the lack of health of aquifers around the world. And we see of the 37 largest aquifers, 21 have already exceeding their tipping points, and, and there's 13 that are already approaching their tipping points, definitely in significant stress. So no question, worldwide, we're in trouble. We're running out of water, and we're particularly running out of groundwater. How is it so possible, you mentioned, you know, currently a quarter of the world's population is facing water issues. How is that number jumping to two-thirds in a relatively short amount of time? Well, you know, we have a combination of phenomena that are, that are obvious. Our, our population is increasing. Global warming is increasing. Our demands for water are increasing and even outpacing population because of industrial growth, because of preferences in agriculture because of industrial agriculture because because more and more people are eating meat we have global warming is 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 melting glaciers uh, which are kind of our banks that carry many cities many parts of the world through through um, low rainfall low precipitation periods so we have this concatenation of circumstances that are actually not increasing proportionally but but geometrically and um and I think this statistic of two-thirds, I, I would say that's an underestimate because many places in the world that, that are already water stressed, for instance, in the United States, and the U.S. Southwest, they're, they're, they're able to create the mirage that, that they're dodging this bullet by essentially spending their way out of the problem for the time being, but reservoirs are going dry, rivers are going dry, we, we're all hearing about Lake Mead, Lake Powell. And so, so yeah, this estimate of two thirds of the world's population being water stressed by 2025, just a few years from now, or perhaps 2030, I think is very realistic. You mentioned how there's 400 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa living with this, with water shortage, water insecurity. Could you paint a little picture about what that means for those people living there, of what their daily lives are like because of the lack of quality water? Yeah, uh, you know, at the, at the most basic, obvious level, I, I mean, something you, you see when you're on the ground and, you know, despite the, the billions and perhaps, hun- not perhaps, hundreds of billions of dollars that have been put into various water projects over the decades, when you're in Africa, it doesn't matter where you are. It could be Uganda, Kenya, Togo in West Africa, Zambia in Southern Africa. What do you see? You see, you see 
barefoot children, mostly young girls, walking kilometers, maybe many kilometers with filthy jerry cans to water sources, sometimes boxed in springs, sometimes surface water sources of dubious quality, and then, then walking back and that back home. And that picture hasn't changed very, very much over the, over the decades. Um, the reasons are, are all over the place, but the, 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 the obvious, the, the most fundamental reasons, you have poorly conceived projects, for even projects where, for instance, the World Bank has, has spent billions of dollars, like the, uh, the massive Kariba Dam, for instance, in Southern Africa, that just don't work, that just don't provide water to the people that need it. You have poor governance, you know, you have civil war that's going on years in the in Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, Ethiopia, you have drought as a consequence of global warming in Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia, this, this catastrophic crisis that's been going on for decades, really, in the, in the Horn of Africa. You have a complete lack of, of water infrastructure. And then sort of overshadowing all of this, decisions that are being made, so many of them are political. The, the, many of the decisions that are done to improve water, they're not being done with the proper scientific or, or engineering input, essentially a, a lack of professionalism. Well, speaking of that professionalism, that's a big part of the work that you're doing. And as a geophysicist and hydrogeologist, why why are these disciplines particularly suited to address the water issues in sub-Saharan Africa and and even other places of the world? Yeah, good good question. Um, certainly something I think about a lot because that's that's what I do. And um, you know, a statistic, not to bury people in statistics, but a statistic that even I think most hydrogeologists would be um, surprised to know is that that of all the fresh water in the world, 98 to 99% of the world's fresh water is groundwater. So it's, it's under the ground, it's invisible. So how are you gonna find it? Well, you know, geophysics, it's a, it's a great tool. And it's often the, the only tool. I mean, the only other tool we're left with is, is drilling. So geophysics is really the only way you can cost-effectively um, explore for this, this hidden resource. And then you look at, you know, let's look at Africa, one of the most water-stressed places on the planet. And it, it might sound like a cliche or a trivial comment, but Africa is a big place. And, and people, even people that realize it's a big place, they don't realize how big it is. I mean, in the continent of Africa, you could drop all the United States, India, China, most of Europe, and it's Japan, you'd still have, have lots of room. So how are you gonna, how are you gonna explore over an area that size? And then the, where the aquifers are, and especially where the rural populations are, the, the petrophysics, the geology, the hydrogeology, it's well suited to geophysical exploration. So about half of sub-Saharan Africa is underlaid by crystalline basement, that is uh, igneous rock. And that's the home of, of, of more than half of the, of the rural population. And, and, and just because of the nature of the petrophysics, because of where the aquifers are in these weathered zones and the changes in electrical properties, they're, they're very well suited to electrical methods, either on the ground or on the air or, or towed behind a, a quad. And then, you know, there's other more, more logistics reasons. So, for instance, um, you know, a lot of these electromagnetic methods, for instance, they're, they're tough to apply in a lot of places in North America, but Africa, you have no infrastructure, you have no power lines, no pipelines, no fences. Um, people don't even have 
transistor radios in most villages. So, you know, you can really apply these these electrical techniques with without any of the problems that you have in, in more developed parts of the world. Well, the title of this lecture is called A Strategy for Improving Rural Water Supply Development in Sub-Saharan Africa. What can attendees expect from this talk? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to first lay out the, the sequence, how some of the projects I, I've worked on have, have proceeded, the specifics, problems, specific issues, geological, technical, logistical that I've encountered. And I've, I've done similar talks to the, this before, but then I'm also going to lay out as a way forward, um, solutions, things we can do better, both at a, at a grassroots technical level, at a petrophysical level, at a governance level, at a planning logistic level, and 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 kind of step back and recognizing that that these problems are severe, significant. They're not just affecting places like Africa or, or India or Indonesia, but they're affecting the whole world. And and try to lay out very specific ways forward that that are practical. That thing things that we can we can do. Um, and some. Probably the main point I hope to get across my talk is these water problems, they can be solved. And we have the resources, we have the know-how, we just have to put the effort in, apply the right techniques, and, and put enough money into, into addressing these problems. Why, why is this topic of interest maybe to a, a geophysicist not particularly interested or working in this way, looking for water or just more general, you know, these water issues? Well, first of all, of course, water water issues, whether whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they're, they're issues that, that affect all of us, whether it's through paying your utility bill or, or being subject to watering restrictions of your of your of your lawn or, or being subject to food prices going up because because California is, is suffering a, a drought and, and the price of lettuce is is going through the roof, which is the case right now in, in Canada. A head of lettuce can cost as much as $15. Secondly, these, um, these scarcity and water quality issues, they're, they're everywhere. Some places in the world, we can, we can buy us, ourselves again out, out of these problems, such as you know, in California, they're building desalination plants, and you, know, you have lead in your drinking water in, say, Flint, Michigan. The, the state buys a new piping system. But that's a temporary solution. We're not, we're not going to be able to buy our way out of these problems forever, and, and certainly not, not everywhere. And then, you know, if you're a nurse scientist working on other aspects of earth scientists, whether, you know, for instance, if it's resource exploration, whether it's oil and gas or mining, or you're working in geothermal or even renewable, solar, hydroelectric, water, and usually groundwater is a big part of the equation. And you're going to find yourself in in competition with other energy projects, with with farming, with with local water users, and beyond that, I I think we're all entering a a new period. When I say all, the entire world and certainly developed world, we're entering a new period where where we just can't keep working like we we have in the past. And I'd say again, this is highlighted in the resource industry where there's where water, not only is water use coming into more and more competition with other uses, but it's also coming into more competition with indigenous societies so we're, and impoverished societies. So we're, whether you think they're important or not, you cannot avoid the 
social justice issues, the the issues of water poverty, the issues of um, impact of development that are that are going to become increasingly front and center in all projects and all resource projects that geoscientists will be addressing. I think you've made a, a pretty strong case about why these water issues, it's not strictly a humanitarian reason why we should care. You're talking about $15 heads of lettuce. But, you know, looking at that more, I, I guess, looking at that specifically with humanitarian ways, is there a good first step for a geophysicist looking to apply what they know in, in more humanitarian ways? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it's, whether it's young people coming out of school or, or have or people that have been, that are well along in their, their careers, they can, you know, really try to focus on, on what skills they have that would be relevant, whether it's hydrogeology or GIS or, or data science, you know, skills that, that really do have, have specific needs. And then try to find an NGO or an international agency or a government body that, that can make, make use of those um, skills and, and, you know, develop the networks and, and find the opportunity. And there are, um, you know, of course, on, online, everything's possible. Probably the, the single website I'd, I'd say to look to first as, as a resource would be, would be, it's called Relief Web. It's run by OCHA, O-C-H-A, and that's the, I think it's the Office for Communication Humanitarian Agencies. It's, it's run by the UN. And that gives a tremendous overview, the relief website, all one word, that gives a tremendous overview of all the um, crises going on in the world, all the humanitarian catastrophes, who's working in those areas, everything's searchable by, by theme, for instance, you, and, and by keyword, you can key in geophysics, you can key in water, you can key in the, the country, the, the agency, consultancy, short-term, long-term, full-time, part-time. So, so yeah, hone some skills, some really practical skills, get online, find the fit, make the networks, put some emails out and, and follow up. Sort of lastly here, Paul, what principal teaching or point of view has helped you succeed in your field? Yeah, you know, I, I think there it's a lot of the, um, just the basic traits that can apply anywhere. I, I'm, not a, I'm not one of those people that reads business books or how-to books or how to make your life better or anything like that, but it's really the, the, the fundamental skills that, that work, work everywhere. So, and you know, I'm, I'm not the greatest geophysicist. I'm not the greatest hydrogeologist. Um, but so what are some of those features? Well, well perhaps the, the single biggest one is very quickly recognizing that I, I don't know everything and I'm not the greatest at everything. And I, and I, so I've always had great fortune and, and prioritize putting together a fantastic team. So a team of colleagues, a team of locals, you know, trying to cover all the bases, not just the technical skills, but language, um, just the, sometimes the brutal physicality of, of the, these prop programs. And yeah, with a great positive team, you can, you can do every, anything. And then that probably carries on to the next sort of general skill that, that can get you pretty far anywhere in life. And that's just persistence and, and stubbornness. And I, I have lot, lots and lots of that. And yeah, if I, if I was to take a, a third one, and, I've, I, and, and I'm glad it's something I, I learned pretty early in my career, is um, 
well, for better or worse, so, you know, having the, I guess I'll call it the intellectual courage to refute other, other ideas. Like when you see something is, is just plain wrong or you see there's a better way of doing things, you, you do it. You don't just keep following in the same old, same old, because that's how others have done it with longer careers and more letters after their name. And I, I think we all see that more now than ever with, um, you know, these young, more technology-driven people. But it wasn't so obvious maybe 20, 30 years ago. And, but the corollary to that is, um, you know, at the same time, I've, I've certainly had failures. And I've, I've certainly, not many, but I've certainly drilled dry holes and just gone in completely the wrong direction on, on some water projects. And to, and to recognize those failures and freely admit those failures and, and understand what went wrong and, and correct it. I mean, that's, um, you know, always trying to move forward, always trying to focus on what the main goal is, which is, uh, you know, to provide water and for people in need. Yeah, looking at failure as just feedback and and continuing on is a, a great lesson to share. I appreciate you highlighting the work you're doing and highlighting these serious issues that are facing many, many people around the world and look forward to hearing this talk on December 6th. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew. Yeah, I appreciate the interview and your interest. SEG produces Seismic Sound Off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource. And follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.